Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Rachel Dangermond, a writer and award-winning reporter who, in 2018, purchased the historic 100 Men Hall in Bay St. Louis. The 100 Men Hall is the recipient of the 2024 Governor's Arts Award for Arts and Community. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for being here, and congratulations on this prestigious award. Thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate you having me on and really appreciate this award. Thank you so much. Well, let's get started by um, just delving into the history of 100 Men Hall. And, and I want to get to your story too later. Um, but for those who might not be familiar with the hall, can you give us an overview of the history and how it, found, how it was founded um, and how it has evolved over time? Certainly. Um, this is a, a very interesting story. Um, in 1894, a group of men in the Black community here in Bay St. Louis formed what is a DBA, a Death and Burial Association. These were very common throughout the South in Black communities as a way of self-reliance. Um, this one in particular had um, three goals. One was to help bury uh, people in the community in a respectable manner, um, also for civic acti activity. And the third thing was to knit friendships. That was a very, very big part of it, their social life. Um, those men, one of them worked on the rail yard, which is right across the street from the 100 Men Hall. We're actually in back of the historic train depot and um, saw that this property was for sale. It's almost an acre, bought it for $100. Wow. Um, this was in the early 1900s and um, deeded it to the organization. And then the organization began having meetings here. They built a pavilion here. And in 1922, they actually built the hall, which the hall is um, 3,500 square feet. It's a lot bigger inside than you would think by visiting it um, from the outside. And um, they began having meetings here and the meetings would go like this. Okay, I know that Lauren went to the doctor and the doctor's bill is $3. How much do we have in the kitty? Can we pay $3 or half of it? Um, you know, um, Miss May's husband died. We're going to give the family $250 to bury him. And, um, so it was a supportive community, um, organization. And then there was also the ability to entertain the community. Mm. So there was a lot of local acts. And one of the biggest acts here was the manless wedding. And the manless wedding was when, um, it, they, did sort of the drama of a wedding. So think of all the drama that could go on in any single wedding. Mm -hmm. And half of the uh, half of the people in the wedding, the men were all women dressed in drag. And um, oh wow! So 
I know. Isn't that wild? That so is, I have photos yeah. from that. And I love it when people come in here and they say, um, oh, that's my auntie or that's my mom or my grandma. You know, and it's these people, these people look like men. They look just <laughs> like men. Um, so that was one thing. They also had Mardi Gras balls. And at that time, a lot of um, New Orleans traditions and carnival were very much here as well. So you had a lot of uh, folks in the black community who dressed in Indian wear and, you know, made their suit every year. Very common in New Orleans and very rare now here on the coast. Um, and so they would put together Mardi Gras balls. They would build the floats in the yard. And um the oldest crew, the crew of diamonds, you know, which morphed into the crew of people, which is now the crew of people next generation, they would all have their Mardi Gras balls here and they'd have a king and queen. And so there was a lot of different events. Um, the hall was significant to this community, significant to the black people in this community in a sense it was a place where they could go during the dark ages of Jim Crow and segregation and feel safe mm -hmm. and feel like they could be themselves and they could have fun and they could have community. Um, so it's very important. And, and it was more than just a place in that respect. I mean, there was a woman who came in when I was doing this portrait project that she was one of seven kids and their house burned down right before Christmas and the hall, the organization let the whole family live here. Oh, until wow. they rebuilt the house. So it was, you know, it went way beyond just entertainment and things like that. It was definitely a community place. Um, and it also had generations. So you had the first generation who built it. Then you had the next generation who I think are the ones who really had the most fun. Hmm. And then you have the generation coming up after it that just couldn't, you know, every generation, the kids wanted to come in here, you know, see what was going on mm -hmm. um, and, you know, go where the fun was. And um, so anyway, you start having, like in the 40s, you're starting to see these, um, I mean, all along you have this, but you're getting these legendary um, musicians traveling the South. These are Black musicians who cannot play at white establishments, who cannot stay in white establishments, who cannot eat in white establishments. And they're coming to places like this, a juke joint, and they're, um, they're giving a dance. And, you know, they're getting paid just nominal amounts of money and but they're being fed and they get to play here and they get to make money and they get to do what they love and that's play music. And so these, you know, musicians, I mean, we have a chalkboard full of our, you know, Hall of Fame and that's, you know. James Brown, Ray Charles, Etta James. Um, and, you know, of course, the list goes on. B.B. King, Sam Cooke, um, you know, and then you've got all the New Orleans musicians who played here, the Neville brothers. You have Ernie Cato. You have James Booker, who actually was raised here in Bay hmm. St. Louis. You know, so you just have this unbelievable wealth of uh, talent coming through here and who played here. And then it just seemed like, everyone added to the vibe here you yeah. know so that now even over a hundred years later you walk in the door and you feel it it's the first thing you feel is that energy still in here that's um, that's and, incredible well can i ask you spe yeah. speaking of some of those musicians um coming uh -huh. through were was this just mostly word of mouth like this was a great spot a great juke joint to play in or were were there like booking agents how do you have any of the records of how that that worked well, there were many things. I've talked to some white people. You know, there's a lot. It's interesting enough. You know, we're we're considered in back of town, um, which is 
but we're still part of the historic main town. And um, it, the uh, Black families lived on the beach. And it wasn't until you start getting the 40s and 50s that they get push back and back and back to back a town. Hmm. But actually, you know, that it, it's an interesting thing. We've um, actually recorded a lot of oral history where the racism sort of got worse. You know, it was, one, it was a kind of a weird twist where the hmm. older, uh, the, like the, those in their 80s to 90s, remember a time when things were a little bit more peaceful to those in their 70s who remember a much harder form of racism. Um, but so we're in back a town and some white people who are now in their 60s can remember seeing flyers, but like they didn't know where this place was, even though we lit, we were right in a white neighborhood, you yeah. know, um, but they didn't know what this place was, but they would see a flyer like James Brown, things like this, but wow. they really didn't know what was going on. And, you know, interestingly, one of the gentlemen, Morris Singleton, who is a part of one of our um, oral history videos, he talks about how he saw James Brown here for a dollar fifty, And then later, oh my he gosh. went to... Right. He went to New York and he's in Harlem and someone said, James Brown is playing at the Apollo. And he says, OK, let's go. And then it was four dollars. And he said, I'm not paying four dollars. <laughs> and they're like, where are you from? And he's like, Mississippi. I saw him for a dollar fifty. Wow. It was like that kind of time, you know, where these legends walked amongst us. But I would say that then and now, Lauren, I feel as if the black community operates definitely through word of mouth. Hmm. Much more so than anything. Even today, the cruel people, next generation, um, is the continuation of that black crew that started years and years and years, decades ago. But they, a lot of, I mean, they have sellout fundraisers here at the hall today, and you will hardly see a posting anywhere. Most of it is word of mouth. Wow, so, that's incredible. Um, and that's what definitely what happened back then. Well, and part of your mission at 100 Men Hall is um, to preserve culture, interpret history, gather the community. I mean, preservation can mean a lot of things. It can mean preserving stories, but you also have a 100-year-old building that I'm sure requires a, a, a lot of work. What does preservation look like to you? Well, okay, so first thing, you know, um, first thing is this, my, I um, wanted very much for the black community to feel ownership. This was built by and for the black community, and they had pretty much felt divorced from it since mm -hmm. 1982, when it changed from black to white hands for the first time. One of the biggest, my, one of my biggest missions when I got it was to you know, I always said, hashtag bring black back, you know, to get the black community to come back in and feel that sense of ownership so that they could help tell the story because they know the story. They lived it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and it's very interesting because generationally you have those people my age and older who were the last of the kids who wanted to get in here and came in here. But their kids don't have a history of being in here. And oh, then those kids then those people are having kids that don't have a history of being here. So it's very important for me to address each one of those generations. And so for the 40-year-olds that don't have a history, that were born after or right around when the hall was being sold, 
I have this wonderful partnership with the Crew of Real People Next Generation where they host their fundraisers here. So I will look across a sea of people dancing and think your aunties came here, your parents came here, your grandparents came here. You know, how soul satisfying is it to see mm -hmm. you, you know, being here, you know, being here and enjoying this place. Um, and then we do a lot of art camps for the kids. And we just finished like this past Saturday, we finished our soulful Christmas. One of the things when I moved here was they didn't have black Santa anywhere to take photos with. And black Santa in, in New Orleans, in Gentilly, there was Mr. Dennis, black Santa. And when you went to take your picture with him, the lines were around the block and up the mm. block and down Gentilly Boulevard. And so my son is black and it was very important that you know, even though we're Jewish, that he get his photo with Black Santa. And so they didn't have one here for the kids. And so we, our board member, Brian Labatt, is volunteered to be our Black Santa. And so we we do a hot breakfast for 100 kids. We do prizes and games. And we partner with uh, Sandra Price and Retrofit and amongst other community organizations. But she really, she brings it, man. She brings it full on. And um. It's like one of the best days. There are kids running all over the place. They're winning raffles. They're playing games. They're, you know, they're making uh, cardboard cutouts of reindeers and Santa and all sorts of things. It's such a wonderful day. We feed a hot breakfast to all the family and it's a big deal. So we're getting That's the kids beautiful. there, yeah. you know, so yeah. right now you have the whole scope. So now you, so my hope is that these kids will have a memory of the hall that's good. And you know, that then these 40 year olds, they're coming in and they're having a memory of the hall that's good. Um, so, so being part of the black community here and the Hunter Men Hall having a significant role in the black community's life is very important. And so, yes, we do that. However, we've expanded our mission to be um, groups that don't have a spotlight, you know, mm -hmm. so that could be the LGBTQ community. It could be the Latin community. We do a Dia de los Muertos. We have um, the matzo ball for the Jewish community. You know, all of these sort of communities that don't have their day in the sun here. So we try to expand to be inclusive of all of those and give them to celebrate and elevate their difference. That's that's really incredible and and so important for vitality in a, in a community. Um, you know, you've talked a lot about elders' memories of this place. Have you found that now that it's back as a community organization, that elders are are playing a role in in organizing or participating in some of these events? Is is that something that you're you're pretty intentional about inviting them? Yes. Part. I mean, sometimes it takes dragging them out of the house. <laughs> I mean, you know, people today, I mean, even the elders, come on, probably uh, everybody is in front of a phone or a streaming television or computer at their house. And to get the elders to come out, it does take a little bit of, you know, a lot of tugging. Um, we were fortunate. We did a Juneteenth Jubilee this past um June 19th and um it was part of our 100 year celebration and we had Bambula um with Luther Gray he's the head of Congo Square in New Orleans and he brought his drumming group and African dancing and we had that on Friday African dancing and drumming and then we did the Jubilee on Saturday and so we had a lot of the elders here and it, we 
it was a show and it was fun and it was very exciting. Um, and so we've talked about maybe doing it every other year. Um, Helping Hands of Waveland has been sponsoring the Juneteenth celebration over in Waveland. And so it's hard because we don't want to conflict with what's already been done. We've tried to merge. It's been difficult. A lot of the elders like to do what they have been doing. So we're, it's, it's always a work in progress. You know, yeah. how do we get people in? How do we get people to feel comfortable? And um, so, yeah, we do things and we, we, you know, in all of those generations, it's very intentional to try to get people in. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB, the number four car. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Misby Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes, Grants Director at the Misby Arts Commission, and I'm back talking with Rachel Dangermond, owner of 100 Men Hall, an African-American landmark that is on the Misby Blues Trail. 100 Men Hall is the recipient of a 2024 Governor's Arts Award. So, Rachel, before we, we took a break, we were talking about the background and the history of the hall and some of the, you know, programs that y'all host um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about your journey to 100 Men Hall. Um, you're an artist in your own right. You're a writer and a former reporter. Can you tell me a little about your career and your creative practice that led you to finding 100 Men Hall in the first place? Uh, yes. Actually, this is a great place to pick up considering we just listened to Cedric. Um, I was in New Orleans. My son was seven. I had been out in California for about 16 years and I came back to New Orleans three months before Katrina. It was home. It was devastating, but I was bound and determined to stay and, you know, rebuild and all of the things. Um, and then I had my son and things had just changed a lot in New Orleans. And, um, I actually had been working with the mayor's office, Mayor Landrew, with the Winter Institute here in Mississippi. Mm. And I was the community dialogues of the welcome table. And I was um, a facilitator and I had my own cohort. And um, I've been doing that for a while, as well as hosting writer work, writer's workshops in my house. Um, and just, you know, I was a community activist. Um, and I was also an investigative reporter. And so kind of doing my thing, and things started changing in New Orleans. Um, they were just the tenor of um, crime and things like that were just getting out of hand. Um, and I um, started looking for a move. I, I was ready to make a move. <clears throat> and 
a friend owned a place here. And so we, I came here frequently with my son to be by the beach and I grew to love Bay St. Louis and uh, this other friend, a mutual friend of that, the guy, Tommy, who I was staying at his place, mm-hmm. Tommy's friend, Brenda sent me a link and it said, come live in a blues hall. And when she sent it, it almost like sort of vexed me. I was like, why did she send me something like this? Like, why would I want to live? I mean, it was just, it was so absurd that I didn't even understand why she was sending it. And um, a series of events happened. You know, I would almost say like Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events (laughs) happened. (laughs) And uh, I found myself at Tommy's house. Uh, Tin and I were spending a week here, um, you know, and we were here. And I said, let's go look at this place. And we just came and the door opened and I was greeted by this uh, Latino guy and he uh, opened the door and I walked in and I just, you know, I have said that there were two times in my life where I had divine clarity, so Mm -hmm. clear that I knew what I was doing. And the first one was when I met my son, I Mm -hmm. knew and I met my son. He was nine months old. I adopted my son. Um, and when I met him, I knew with divine clarity, I was born to be his mother. I just mm. knew it. And then the second time was when I came in the hall. I came in. I didn't even know what it was. I just said, whatever this is, I'm doing it. And I didn't know what it was. Um, and then I started finding out what it was, but still kind of didn't understand and I got in and a lot of sort of things were not as they should be. Uh, the nonprofit that was started by these gentlemen in 1894 had been revoked a few years before, about five years before, things like that. It was a mess. Yeah. It was really a mess. And I mean a mess. And so I was trying to find my way through this morass of mess. And also like, what am I doing here? You know, and then um, there was a lot of that, you know, but at every turn, somebody came into my path. I was at the grocery store and this man was stocking cans and he looked at me and said, you're the woman bought that Hunterman Hall. And I said, yeah. He said, when I was knee high, I snuck in behind my brother's legs and I saw Sam Cook there. And then this wow. other woman rides, and she's on a bike and she says, when I was 13 years old, they wouldn't let me in the door, but I sat on the steps and Etta James was singing and it sounded like she was standing right by me because she had this booming voice and the doors were closed, but I could hear her like she was right here. Oh gosh. And just stories, you know what I mean? They were just so crazy amazing. And then this woman starts calling me and she, her name was Ann Madden. <laughs> and she said, uh, you know, I'm saying Madden. Um, I have a gallery. I wanted to talk to you. And then she's like, this is Ann Madden and Men photography. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, who is this person? Why is she stalking me? <laughs> you know, it's like, and then um, she was going to do a fundraiser and it was for David Beria. And I didn't, I, couldn't get a license to get a liquor license or anything like that because the uh the 501c3 had been revoked and I didn't know that and so I was trying to they wanted me to pay this big fine to get it back and stated and I was like wow and so the state of Mississippi their solution was start a new nonprofit I'm like oh my god how could I take this 1894 nonprofit and just let that go you know it's so much a part of the history here and so you know, I was in the throes of what to do, what to do. And mm-hmm. um, meanwhile, 
and um, said, I want to do a fundraiser there. We want to use the hall. It was going to be a private thing. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. And guess, guess who the entertainment was? Oh, I, I feel like I know. <laughs> Edward Burnside. Wow. Edward oh, Burnside. my gosh. And let me tell you something. He he changed my whole view of what this place was because mm. when he got on that stage and started playing, the, you know, that's the thing. This place has an energy. It has a vibe. But when you get the music on the stage, the people in there, and it all, it's like, it's just, there's nothing like it. It has its own life. And so <laughs> Cedric and his wife, Quana, we became very fast friends. And um, and Cedric has played here multiple times. It became a thing because he, his wife and my birthday are very close um, that he would come play on my birthday. That's why I always say, can you come play on my birthday, please? <laughs> That's um, awesome. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, so there's lots of things, lots of things that this fell into sort of my, um, th- let me say, I have a basket that I brought to it. And then now my basket overflows with all the things it has brought to me, right? So one of the things that I wanted to do was community dialogue, work on um, uh, race, racial equity in the community, something I've been doing in New Orleans. And this place and my work in New Orleans actually made me look at things quite differently. Hmm. Um, a lot of those community dialogues are done with very much like-minded people. And it's not that everybody doesn't have still more to evolve when it when it comes to racism and what it is in this country anyway you know black white brown it doesn't matter you know right. everybody still has more to, we were all standing outside when the contamination came down however the way i was going about it and what i was being taught how i was going about it i felt like it really wasn't doing much of anything so hmm. my my goal was I have three things. One, it was to bring black back into this place, have it have the community feel ownership. And number two, to help tell its story, because this tells a much more nuanced story of Mississippi than you'll hear anywhere else. And it's the it's a story of a very self-directed, self-reliant community who made their own joy, you know, amidst very dark times. But not only that, but this is a community where I have to say, there is so much talent that came out of here. You know, uh, there's Richmond Barté, one of the premier artists of the Harlem Renaissance, born and raised here. There's Ellsworth Collins, architect, um, designer, craftsman, musician, you know, Renaissance man. There's James Booker, born, born in New Orleans, but raised here, learned to play piano in St. Rose Church. Just the talent here, is, it's incredible. Okay. Um, and so, and then the third thing, and I think that this was where I felt like I wanted to make a difference was, um, you know, I feel as if, um, if I can help with the equity part of the situation. Mm -hmm. So our membership organization, hundred women DBA, we help women of color in business. We also, uh, sponsor five scholarships for girls of color graduating from high school here. Um, whenever and wherever we can, we hire black, you know, black small business, black caterers, black artists, you know, we just, we, we, we keep a list of black owned businesses on the coast. We, you know, if I can help with that part of reparations, then I feel like that's to me more meaningful than anything else that I've done. 
in terms of my work in that way. So that so that so that's important. Um, and then the other parts were, um, you know, I've always had like a huge Hanukkah party in my house. We're Jewish, and on the eighth night of Hanukkah, I always had live music or some music, and I made three hundred latkes, and I had oh you know, everybody. And, you know, people always said, oh, I love coming to your house for Hanukkah. And I loved sharing that culture with other people. I really did. So, of course, it's part of our culture here at the hall. We have, you know, the matzo ball. And it's, you know, and people who normally do not uh, know or understand or have been privy to celebrate this holiday get to see it firsthand and people who are Jewish have a place to come celebrate and be in community. Well, so and I have to say important. we're, we're recording this two days, I believe before this year's month. Hanukkah ball. ends. Yeah. The matzo balls on the last day of Hanukkah on this Thursday. Exactly. And, you know, and these are some kind of crazy times again, Lauren, you know, much like other times when things are just uh, not in balance you know, when I put up a tiki torch menorah out front and my neighbor who helped me put it up, who's a very kind man, <laughs> that's going to almost make me a little bit welp up. But he said, he called me up afterwards and he said, listen, I'm just hearing a lot of stuff about anti-Semitism. I'm really worried about you with that menorah Aww. out front. And I just feel like now's the most critical time to put the menorah out front, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's just, it's kind of a weird time. And Anyway, it feels good to have this community and its support and um, its acceptance. So I'll say that. Um, but anyway, so also this uh, is a place that celebrates many things on my bucket list, music, dancing, food, and different people coming together who normally wouldn't be in the same room. You know, and I've always loved that about New Orleans and places I've lived to go to places where people who don't normally congregate together come together with a common interest. Um, so, well, and so there's what that. Was that <laughs> what was that transition like, you know, moving from very big city, New Orleans, to much smaller city it seems like you found so much community energy in bay st louis do you do you miss anything about new orleans or is that kind of like you're you're just very content um there on the coast well i mean this okay so i think when everything's kind of heating up and getting crazy pandemic these things those things you know there's something about being here in this small coastal town where the energy is very low key um, and you, you can always have a view of the water and it, the expansiveness yeah. of looking at open water. So there, that is a solace, you know, um, for me, uh, mo the most important was my son. I mean, my son can go out on his bike and ride into old town. I mean, come on, when we were in New Orleans, if he walked out the door, I was like, where are you going? Who's going? You know, I was just terrified for him being a young black man in New Orleans. Just, you know, I, I don't have the same fear here. It's not that there, this place doesn't have some things, but it's not those things. Um, and so that, that sort of, uh, feeling of security and protection for him is crucial and very important. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. 
To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes, and I'm talking with Rachel Dangerman, owner of the 100 Men Hall in Bay St. Louis, um, which is the recipient of a 2024 Governor's Arts Award. Rachel, I'd like to ask you about um, just the infusion of arts within the the physical structure of 100 Men Hall. You've worked with a number of Black black artists to help tell the story of the hall, hall. Who are some of the artists um, who you worked with and what sort of projects did they create? Well, you know, Lauren, first of all, as a writer, you know, I, first I came in thinking, oh, I'm going to write about this place. But then it was like, you know what, even me, like I speak about this place and I write about this place, but I really then started calling to the community to come in. So I have a couple of people I call my spokespeople. They'll come in and tell their history because, you know, they've got it. They're, they're it. They are the history. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then um, a lot of people would drive by this place and they didn't even know it, what it was. They didn't even know it was here. They would pass it thinking it was a house or something because it looks very small from the outside. So one of the first things that happened was a grant came across my desk, which was with the Mississippi National Heritage Association. And it said, you're part of the heritage area. And, um, you know, we're offering a grant for you to tell your story and, you know, how to, um, it was like, um, I think it went like foster the heritage area, promote the heritage area hmm. and something else. Anyway, so I applied for all of those. I applied for a three-prong <laughs> approach. Yeah. I was like, okay, let's do it. Why not? Big. Yeah, all my friends were like, now, you know, when you apply for a grant, first off, you rarely ever get it. <laughs> they gave it to me. And it was, I got Gus Bennett, who's the photographer for Essence and also Jazz Fest. And he's an amazing photographer. And I got him to come take portraits of people from the black community who had a history with the hall. And so as he took their portrait, I would get a blurb of their oral history. And that was fantastic. And Gus is an amazing photographer. And those are all on our website at 100 Men Hall. It's called the 100 Men Hall People Project. That was one part of it. The other part was I got Window, a young African-American artist um, who came and did the mural on the side of the hall. And when we we're going to do this mural, I wanted public art. I wanted something as a gift to the city and like, hey, here we are. And at first it would be so easy to put all the famous people who played here. But instead we went for the people who were part of the community. So it starts with Albert Fairkinatu is on the end of the mural. And he was the first president of the NAACP here. Um, and his brother, Harry Fairkinatu, was the band leader who used to play here at the hall frequently. Mm. Um, and then he goes to guitar Bo, and Bo and Dee were an item. They were a big uh, sing, uh, duet that uh, played up and down the coast uh, for many years. And matter of fact, when guitar Bo died, which was like a year after I was here, we held a, a benefit for him to raise money for his burial. Um, and then it goes, uh, we do have Etta James on the mural because, you know, she's Etta James. Um, <laughs> and then we have 
<laughs> three girls who were part of a Mardi Gras ball. They were here dancing and performing for a Mardi Gras ball. Um, and they're my age now, but they're little girls in the picture. Um, and then we ended with Lucius Spiller because he was a friend and coming to play the hall. And he's today, he's like a modern, you know, part of our, the, the today part of the hall. So it's a visual storyboard and it tells the story of the hall. And it also is a backdrop for people to take pictures. And, you know, also it just, it, it points where we are. And now with the new Amtrak coming back in the commuter train, it will stop. People look across the tracks and they'll go, what is that? You know, oh, it's definitely yeah. a, what is right? It's and, so um, eye-catching. It's such a gorgeous, yeah, bright he did mural. A fantastic job. Yeah. He and Jolene Barkley, they did a great job. And then we built the tin shed and there used to be a caretaker's cottage attached to the hall. Um, but it blew away in Camille. And so we had, we followed kind of its footprint, but detached. And that's so musicians can spend the night. Um, musicians can come and stay. Artists um, can come and do residencies. And we also rent it out, you know, for people who want to stay in some fantastic place. Um, but anyway, the Tin Shed is our place. It's our green room when we're having events. It's, uh, it's a cottage, you know, that people can stay at. It has a full bathroom and almost a full kitchen in it. And so that was, these are all part of our project. And so um, that- can you, um, can you tell me some ahead. more about some of the artists who have stayed in the Tin Shed? And and because yes. I because they have to leave something or contribute yeah. something to the, the legacy of the place. So I'd love to hear about, you know, some of yeah. the artists and what they've done. OK, so the first artist who stayed here was Ann Madden, and it was right after Zeta had blown the roof off the hall. Oh, and, gosh. you know, it was just it was kind of a crazy time around here. Um, but she stayed in here um, and she was sort of a day resident um, and she used it as a studio while they were rebuilding her studio from, you know, that mess. Um, and then we've had Marshall Blevins in here a couple of times. Um, we've had um, Adrian Brown David in here a couple of times. We've had her in here. We actually had a Mac grant for her to be an artist in residence who could bring her kids. This was for, we we applied to Mac for two grants for artists of color, women, who could bring their kids with them to stay in the tin shed because um, a lot of time residencies exclude children and a lot of women artists, you know, are busy with children. And so um, uh, Sunny Patterson, who is a spoken word artist, um, in New Orleans, she came and also, um, um, you know, Adrian Brown David came and Adrian, she's now become a real friend to the hall. She did our giant mural for our ancestors weekend, which mm. is, um, it's a image of her daughter and my son who are the same age looking at each other. And it says, we are our ancestors wildest dreams. And I love Adrian's portraits are always about uh, the joy of black childhood. Um, and um, so that's one of my favorite things. She also did our Chitlin circuit. And when she was gonna do the Chitlin circuit painting, we were kind of going back and forth. I said, you know, well, listen, it could be a product of old and new because, um, you know, the lineage or the Chitlin circuit did not begin here in the United States. That musical talent and ability you know, came from other places 
you know, one of the primary places, Africa. And then it continues today in Black American music. Mm -hmm. So she did um, this four portraits and it starts and it's Etta James and then it's Irma Thomas, but then it's Sunny War and Keanu Linnell who are both contemporaries. And it's, it's just this beautiful portrait she did of them. Um, and so she has been very instrumental and, um, well, and I, I think I should just say here too, you, you know, you plugged, I didn't even ask you to plug Max grant program, <laughs> um, but for anyone who's listening, that feels inspired by, you know, what you're talking about, your artist in residence program, uh, our, I should just mention that our application period opens in February for, for organization Great. project grants. So, um, awesome. people should follow your example and, and do more yeah. of these incredible programs. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. Um, anyway, we also had, um, one of our portraits was of Richmond Barté and that was done by Io Scott and Io is the son of John Scott. John Scott is a, uh, was one of the iconic artists from New Orleans. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the Gentilly area, but there's a beautiful sculpture of his. It's a, it's a turquoise blue sculpture. Um, anyway, I was his son and he's a, an artist in his own right. And he did this incredible painting. It's 80 by 58. Um, it's huge. And it's shows it depicts a young Barté sculpting and his hands are being guided by doves pulling strings because Barté said that he was divinely inspired. And he was one of the first artists to depict black people um, in his work in joyous occasions. Hmm. Um, and he was, as I said before, a, one of the premier artists of the Harlem Renaissance, born and raised here, just incredible. Wow. Um, and um, so um, we also, um, we had the 15 white coats. Uh, we have a big picture of them. The 15 white coats are, were um, around the corner from us is Brian and Rimsky Labat, and they are on my board. And they're also Santa and Mrs. Claus. And their daughter, Sydney, was in medical school in Tulane and happened to visit the Whitney Plantation with a fellow, um, you know, um, student and they said hey let's get the other black medical students to come on here and take a picture in front of one of these slave cabins and there were 15 of them in their lab coats and they took this picture and it went viral and they blew up and they were wow. on everything morning american and everything and so they started an organization called the 15 white coats so that they could support kids of color applying to medical school because it's so expensive and it's so hard and a lot of uh, these kids might be coming from generationally first kids to go to college and to be right. the first kid to go to college and the first kid to go to medical school is a, that's a whole hell of a big thing, you know? So they have a wonderful organization. And when Zeta blew our roof off, they gave us money to help us. And so we have a big picture of them on the wall. Um, we also, Albert Cooper, he's an artist in his own right. And he um, is on my board and he did our first Booker Fest poster, which he painted. Um, and it's just incredibly beautiful. Um, and then we also have Ann Madden on our board and she is a photographer and an artist. And she did this big wonder wall where she has a picture of the hall. And then she has all of the musicians who have died, who played the hall as angels up above with oh, James cool. Booker very prominent position. Um, we have, oh, I hope I don't leave anybody out because we have so many, um, but it's, you know, one artist has inspired, my friend, Darren Butler, who's an artist in New Orleans. He had these beautiful um, paintings on wood of women um, in sort of the sixties with afros and sort of um, 
he did our uh, bistro tables. So we, he, he painted those on top of our bistro tables. Then we have some of his artwork up on the walls. We have Gus Bennett's, we have, you know, 278 portraits done by Gus Bennett on the walls. Um, we have uh, uh, lots of stuff, lots of stuff. Anyway, let me just say, we utilize artists and ask them to help us tell this story. And as I said, this is a very important story. Um, and this is a very important place. And so if you've never been, please come visit. Um, and you well, can find more yeah, about Yeah, that's it. the perfect segue <laughs> about where, where do we find out about you and any like major upcoming events that are, are headed, that you're planning? Absolutely. 100menhall.com. 100menhall.com is our website. And we're in the process of upgrading it, but it has a lot on there right now. And you can sign up for our mailing list and find out when things are coming up. But it's definitely worth a stop. And we're either the first or the last on the Mississippi Blues Trail. So, and oh, and we're doing a great project, which is a mobile recording studio. And we hope our first person we interview is Scott Beretta. In that oh, that video. would be great. Well, yes, we're very excited. Uh, Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.